but now I shall begin. So I spoke, actually it was just yesterday, about this important part of practice of relating with mindfulness to our thoughts, to our minds, and the whole thinking process. And in that, spoke about the um, helpfulness of the technique of naming or knowing the kind of thought that we're having. So we're not so interested in the content, but just seeing these patterns of mind that for most of us happen over and over again. So mentioned knowing or naming planning thoughts or remembering thoughts. And this is a strong habit that I think most of us have, thoughts of the future and worry and organizing and thoughts of the past, remembering, rehashing, regret around things that happened in the past. Tonight I want to go into another form of thinking that can be very pervasive, and often a huge source of suffering. And that's the habit of mind of judging, fixing, and comparing. That tendency of mind that I'm sure I see a few nodding heads already, somewhat familiar for you. I often teach retreats with my uh, dear friend and colleague, Philip Moffat. If you've been on a retreat with him, you'll probably know that he often begins uh, our time together on retreat with formally inviting people into a ritual where we're asked to renounce these habits of mind, to take, just like we would a precept, to formally say, I renounce the habit of judging. I renounce the habit of fixing. I renounce the habit of comparing. And he always says, at the end of the retreat, you can take them up again, um, but for now, just like we do the precepts, we we can take that on. And I think it's actually really helpful to highlight this tendency in this way, but I wish it were that easy, that all we had to say is, nope, not going to do that anymore, done with that. It doesn't work that way, but Doing that, as I said, I think it really is helpful, and maybe at the end of this talk, if you wish, we'll, we'll try that, of taking this as a renunciation practice. Um, but these are deep tendencies of mind and heart, um, and it needs an enormous amount of support, intention, kindness, compassion, and mindfulness to actually begin to unravel this tendency of mind. And mindfulness can be so helpful in this process because until something is brought in to out the level of awareness, into our awareness, and especially in this context, until we bring mindfulness to it, there's no potential for transformation. It can be an engine driving a lot of our uh, relationship to ourselves and the world, but we're not clearly seeing it. So being willing to know and name it is so helpful as the beginning of this process of lessening the suffering that we create around this tendency because it can be, as I said, a huge source of suffering. It creates a sense of isolation, of disconnect. It can create anxiety. It can create a sense of vigilance because of this tendency of mind. But what's interesting about this particular thought form is it's actually one we can do something about. It's in in many ways self-created, though I'll talk about its deeply conditioned nature, but with mindfulness, there's an enormous potential for transformation here. And it can actually seem like, and perhaps you've noticed this, that we're doing it more on retreat, right? You see the judgments, you feel the impact of them. Um, And so it can seem like, I'm not always like this, am I? But now it's like, as soon as I see or see something or something move into a certain situation, work meditation, dining room, dorms or whatever, this judging mind leaps into action. And I actually think it's not that it's getting more, it's just in the quiet and the simplicity, we're noticing it more. We're seeing how pervasive it is. And I also think that we're practicing here and cultivating for ourselves these intentions for kindness, for well-being, for contentment. And this kind of thinking stands in such stark contrast to that. We see it more clearly. And that's actually a good thing. 
Because most of the time, for most of us, we live in the world of thought, right? We have a running commentary in our minds about what's happening. That it's almost like we don't know how to navigate things unless we're saying, oh, now Sally's doing this, and Sally, you know, I better go do this, and what about that? And You know, just this narrating, commenting, justifying, um, framing our experience, the mind just obsessing about this. And what's the main subject of conversation in that interior monologue? Yes, the story of me. How am I doing? Do people like me? What did that person think? You know, did they look at me strangely? What do the teachers think? What is the what are the manager? How will I be? You know, and it's just it's endless, right? The story of me. It's like you know, you have a conversation with a new friend or acquaintance that goes on and 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 on about themselves, and finally takes a breath and says, "Well, that's enough about me. So tell me, what do you think about me?" And it's honestly what we want to know a lot of the time, isn't it? It's like, am I doing okay? Am I okay? Am I like? But that tendency can really become distorted. It's not often or even usually neutral. It carries judgments with it. And these judgments are critical. Critical of ourselves and our experience, how we are in the world. And and it's almost two sides of the same coin comes with that criticism of others and this comparing mind. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with this tendency and at a certain point in my practice really started feeling the pain of it, just how much pain it created in myself and in how I related to others, the fear and the anxiety it brought in my sense of myself in the world. So I got interested in this tendency. I, I read books about it. I you know, certainly talked to other people, listened to Dharma talks, practiced with it uh, myself. Um, and one of the books I read was by Byron Brown, who's a student of A.H. Almas, who founded the Diamond Heart School, the Ridwan School over here in the East Bay, the Diamond Approach. And Byron Brown's written a whole book on this judging mind, and he calls it Soul Without Shame. Because there is a lot of shame that happens around this judging voice, especially when we're judging ourselves negatively. And he actually came and did a workshop here at Spirit Rock. This is some time ago, but I attended that workshop. It was really helpful to spend a whole day looking at this function of mind in the engaged way that they do in that particular school. But I found his book also helpful because there's a lot you can read, a lot of good books out there about working with this tendency, but he comes from a spiritual point of view, so it's very aligned with how we would look at and understand this tendency here in in our practice. And what he says about this tendency is that judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. That's really important to recognize. However, there is a good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And so I really see that working with the inner critic, this voice of judging, is one of the powerful ways that our practice of mindfulness can be healing, can start to diminish that barrier for our own potential for growth and transformation. And we've often talked about how central acceptance is to this practice, to accept this moment, to accept our experience, our inner and outer experience. And yet, intention with that is this lack of acceptance towards ourselves. And we really can start to feel the pain of that judging mind. And it can even feel physical. I had a period in my practice where my heart felt like a rock, just unpenetrable, so closed down, so um, unwilling to be vulnerable and to be... Uh, open to my experience. And as I said, 
so self-created. Again, conditioned, deeply conditioned, but to see that this is a workable aspect of our experience. And so, so many of you have already been talking about this in the practice meetings of just coming up against this tendency and how painful it is, how debilitating, how it shuts us down from the opening that's possible. And so really important to see that this kind of work or way of understanding ourselves is not kind of a aberrant sidebar to what's really our meditation practice. It's central, as Byron Brown was saying, because until we access that place of confidence or care for our, in ourselves and for ourselves, there will be limitations to how this transformation progresses, how this transformation opens. And there's this great line, oh, Jack Engler, that's who said it. It's, you, he just says simply, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And what he's pointing to is we have to actually have a healthy sense of self. Now again, that's different from healthy self. We all have a sense of self. This is real and we can see its conditioned nature and everything, but it has its manifestation. We want that sense of self to be somewhat healthy or to be healthy before we can begin the process that often happens in meditation of seeing its conditioned nature and then deconstructing it, seeing its ultimate emptiness. If we do that from a place of feeling disempowered or disconnected, that's not a healthy process. So this establishment of a sense of caring, of self-acceptance, self-love as the foundation is so important for this healing um, to begin. And the more we establish ourselves in that, the more resilient or reliable or accessible our care for others, our compassion, our wisdom can be our ability to meet difficult situations when it's grounded in this confidence or faith or trust in our own hearts and our own capacity. So it really goes together. And on our path of practice, we'll find ourselves moving between these different kind of ways of seeing experience. At times, it'll be deeply personal, where we'll be seeing our unique and uniquely conditioned habits of mind, our family history, cultural history, experiences in the world, and really coming to understand those in new and profound ways. And then that can move along with the deeply impersonal seeings, the universal characteristics, ways of seeing, of impermanence, not satisfactory, not self. These can both actually feed and deepen each other. And for most of us, if not all of us, we need both. We need to understand this very personal process and then that can help us deepen into these more impersonal ways of seeing. And so it's very common, almost inevitable, that as we sit in silence, that old or deep patterns of mind will be revealed to us, the painful ones especially. Um, and old memories, or memories, I should say, because sometimes they're just before the retreat, but often they can be, oh my God, I haven't thought about that for 15 years. And here it is really impacting our hearts and our way of being. It's a very, um, as I said, part of, very much part of this process. And we can start to see as we hold those memories, those patterns, again, with as much kindness as we can, um, how they are conditioned, how we learnt this relationship to ourselves of being self-critical. We learnt it from our families, we learnt it from our peer groups, we learnt it from the culture, this sense of um, we're not good enough, we're not okay, and on some basic fundamental level, we can often take that message in. Jules Pfeiffer is a a famous cartoonist, always with a kind of wry sense of humor, and this is one of his lines. I grew up to have my father's looks, 
my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) So just, we learn that, right? We learn that from our family systems of how people relate to each other. And we can sometimes be our own worst enemies. You know, the most critical voice we ever hear is usually our own voice, right? And this is, I, I read News of the Weird. I don't know if you know that. It's a compilation of um, things that are actually in the news, so they're true. But this guy collects them. So this was from Chesapeake, Virginia. A prisoner, inmate Robert Lee Brock, filed a $5 million lawsuit against Robert Lee Brock, accusing himself of violating his religious beliefs and his civil rights by getting himself drunk enough that he could not avoid various criminal behaviors. He wrote, I want to pay myself $5 million for this breach of rights, but ask the state to pay it on my behalf since I can't work and I'm a ward of the state. Good try, Robert Lee Brock. In April, the lawsuit was dismissed. But can you kind of get the sense of how we can be in this tangled web of, you know, the most critical voice, the the strongest accuser can be ourselves, towards ourselves. And so we internalize this message about how we look, how our bodies are, our intellect or you know, the clothes, the possessions, our abilities, our talents, musical, athletic, whatever, all of these messages can um, really be stuck, get stuck inside us sometimes and even get the sense we should be critical of ourselves. That's an appropriate stance to have. And if, you know, even if we're not sort of having some angst or suffering around our sense of self, we're not really seeing clearly this very distorted view that can deepen to the extent even for some of believing that I'm inherently bad or wrong. I don't deserve any this or whatever, or I don't belong here. That feeling of not belonging, everyone else but not me, can be quite deep or it can come up at times very powerfully. And so part of this process of meditation can be acknowledged, seeing and acknowledging and letting go in a skillful way of these old messages and this conditioning. But we have to see it to be able to begin that process. And this is the the skillfulness that we need to bring to our practice. We talk again and again about not getting caught in the story, not sort of spinning out about things. Andrea said so clearly, it, it's not. It's about the what's happening, not why is something happening. But there can be a skillful way that we can engage using our thoughts or reflection with tendencies of mind that have deep patterns that cause us suffering. So we're not doing therapy here where we're rehashing, you know, what happened in second grade or how our relationship with our parents is. It's very in the moment. But if these memories come up, if these habits are being felt and impacting us here and now, then that's what we're working with. That's what our mindfulness can open to. And we can do a huge amount of skillful work with these tendencies in the moment, because they're here. They're impacting us. We can see them and feel them. And unless they come into this kind of mindfulness, conscious awareness, then they're just the engines running the show underneath the surface, subconscious or unconscious, or just these habitual reactions that, as Byron Brown said, we don't really even notice they're happening until we're willing to feel when we get a little tender or vulnerable, the pain, the sharpness of them. This is not a new tendency of mind. The Buddha spoke about this movement of mind. He called it mana in Pali, and we usually translate that as conceit, but it really means comparing, um, because conceit we often take to mean pride. But the Buddha talked about how pervasive this tendency to think of oneself or others as better than or worse than, 
And even the same as, even, you know, I'm as good as, I'm the same as, is a form of comparing that can bring suffering. So this is, um, again, deep in the Buddhist understanding of the mind. And it's actually one of the last fetters to go before full enlightenment. This, at a very subtle level, this reification of self and this sense of judging or evaluating it. Last on that long list of things before the deep awakening can happen, we release that. So we always say, best to work with it now because it's going to learn how to work with it now because it's going to be with us for a long time. Um, Hopefully getting subtler and subtler and not causing so much suffering, but something to really bring into our mindfulness. So Byron Brown um, looked at the formation of this judging voice. He says, as children, we had to learn social norms to get along, develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it can become overactive, overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. And we can then come to see that now this voice is not so helpful, that it actually limits or controls us. Because the basic message of the judge, he says, is I'm not good enough. People won't like me just as I am. And then it kind of puts the, what do you call that, when you put the second arrow in, you'll never change, you haven't got what it takes. So it just pulls the rug out of our capacity to be fully present, to show up. It's like this sense of deficiency. He says, the judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. Is it, a, it is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these functions, but you are familiar with your judge, and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget, the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience within ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So really important to hold it in that frame. Not bad or wrong that this type of thinking is here if, it's, if it is for you. But we see its conditioned nature and we see how it limits us. And so 
then there's the calling. How do I respond wisely? So, as I said, beginning to understand the conditioned nature of it, for me, was really helpful. Again, in a skillful way. Uh, At the workshop I did with Byron Brown, he had us ask the question in the form of a repeating um, uh, dyad. If you've done that kind of practice, you have one question and someone just keeps asking you over and over again until you go through the layers of your response. And the question was, what's right about judging? And I think that's a really important question to ask ourselves because we wouldn't do it unless it served us somewhere in some way. What we can start to see is perhaps it served us in the past as some kind of defense mechanism, all the ways that Byron Brown described, but it's no longer serving us. We've outgrown that way of relating to ourselves and experience. But we it's been fed, it's been conditioned. Um, and so it persists. If, we were, if we're able to diminish feeding it, it will starve. And that's very much, again, the Buddhist understanding. Feed the wholesome uh, things we want to grow. Starve the hindrances, starve the difficult. Um, places. And what I see about the judge is it has a hook in it. There's some kind of pleasure or satisfaction, not in the, gee, this is great kind of pleasure, but some frisson of satisfaction as as it sticks that hook in us, whether judging ourselves or judging others. And so looking to see what that is, What's the payoff? What's the payback from these judging thoughts about self, about other? As Byron Brown said, it feels like a kind of wisdom. You know, the sword of wisdom. This is what's right. This is what's true. This is what's wrong with those people. This is what's wrong with me. It feels like a kind of wisdom. Um, It feels like, as he said, that it can keep us out of trouble. Like, don't do that. You might get in trouble. People won't like you. You know, you shouldn't do that. And again, there's a way in which ethical conduct is one of non-harming, but this is with that limiting sense, that judging sense that's, that's not helpful. When we judge others negatively, you know, I'm better than, you know, that sense of superiority can feel good, right? To have that distance. Um, but what we see underneath that is we don't have to look perhaps our places of deficiency, or where we might even have the same issue, uh, a habit that we're judging of action that we're judging others for. And there's sort of, again, that safety in separating. Oh, I'm not like them, you know. And we can feel the, the pleasure in that. It gets more interesting where we, when we start to um, question why do we judge others as better than us? as, you know, we're not good enough. And to see how, again, can be different reasons, but I see for myself, there's a sense of safety even in feeling diminished, even in feeling, um, well, in feeling that I don't have to try, put myself out there, because I'm not good enough, they're better, they know how to do it, I don't have to put my opinion into the room to stay quiet, it's safer to stay quiet. And so this um, can feed this feeling of, again, isolation, disconnection, feelings of victimhood or unfairness, because we feel this separation. And so judging ourselves negatively is often the most painful and pervasive form of this kind of thinking. The view of ourselves as unworthy, this internalized message that we took in from family, from peers, from culture, um, from the media. And then there's a whole storyline that goes with that. Oh, if people don't like me, then I won't like them, or I don't have to like them. Again, this sense of isolation. This controlling kind of experience we can have that unless we are a certain way, act a certain way, respond a certain way, we're not lovable. And so we're trying to mold ourselves to some projection of what we think others 
are looking to see in us. And so we get con- contracted around this. And this, for me, it was a lot about hiding. It was like, oh, everyone else knows more. Everyone else is smarter than me. I don't have to put my hand up. I don't have to offer to step into roles of responsibility. I can just kind of, you know, stay in the shadows, as it were. And it felt safer. And it would, I would keep that feedback loop going. And got, you know, that tendency can be so familiar. As I said, we don't even notice that that's how we're relating to the world. It just seems like that's the way things are. Um, and we usually think of these kinds of thoughts as observations, right? They're not judgments. That's just, this is the truth. That person's like this. I'm like that. I always do this. I can never do that. That's just the way things are. We really need to learn the difference here. We really need to see how colored our perceptions are a lot of the time. I think I spoke at the beginning that the practice we're doing here, vipassana, means to see clearly. And at its heart, it means to see with as little projection and distorted perception as possible. And this is very much a place where this is important. We often think and we can get the message that because we think something, it must be true. You know, I need to tell you my truth. And it's not to deny that we can, you know, have truth or no truth. But in our practice, we start to humbly realize how distorted our thoughts can be sometimes, how unreliable, how much they're colored by our conditioning. And so really starting to see that. And out of that self-involvement, often don't recognize the impact of our actions and words on others. We just think we're doing what's obvious or what needs to be said or acting the only way we know how to act and someone's really impacted by that, even on an energetic level. Because of the self-involvement and we're always more concerned because we're so caught in this way of thinking about how things are impacting me or how I'm in the world. And we need to kind of open up that field of connection. And sometimes we can even feel lost if we don't have an opinion about something. It's like some person, some, you know, only have to be a new movie out. Did you see it? What did you think? You know, it's like always being asked to, to form judgments. And if we don't know... You know, that feels like it's, it's, it's not in, in touch with what's actually happening. Um, yet, so much of our path is can we be in the don't know mind? Can we trust this deeper way of knowing that's out of silence, not out of always controlling and fixing and trying to mold our experience to suit and match certain expectations? And so, because of this constant flow of this kind of thinking, it's hard to just let ourselves experience something. And again, this is one of the powers of retreat as we slow down and get more connected. You know, just to be with the sparkle of the frost on a picnic table with the morning sunlight on it and not have to tell a story about it. To be with our inner experience and be really curious and open-minded, open-hearted about it, instead of the story of me and trying to make something of that. So this practice or process of learning to accept, to love, to heal ourselves, um, really important here. Um, And again, for me, it was really helpful to to start to question that tendency to look at why do I want to keep criticizing myself? What is the hook there? You know, as I said, kind of can understand why we might judge others because in that sense of perhaps superiority or separation, there can be some safety, some, some um, you know, the, they say the best offense, the best defense is a good offense. It's like I'll push you away before you can get close and maybe hurt me. I know that was a a pattern for me. 
but to really start looking at in judging ourselves as deficient negatively harshly what's the payoff there what's the hook what's the pleasantness because we create habits of mind because as i said before they serve us in some way it mightn't be out of deep wisdom but somehow as a protection as a defense whatever it was they served us we need to start looking at that and this can happen very young or if we were getting a message of not good enoughness we internalized that so we weren't defying our authority figures not having to go against when someone saying you know you're not why can't you be like your sister or you're not you know getting grades like so and so or you know you're not showing up in the world in the way this person wants you to and so we take that in we take that on we internalize that and in our practice here can begin to open to how painful that is to see that conditioning especially as i said when we start to really deepen and establish this practice of metta and compassion there's just this contrast between the well wishing that we cultivate in that practice and this negative critical harsh voice which one do we feed which one is for our benefit I can remember when I f- went on my first long well my first metta retreat it was a long metta retreat 6 weeks of practice at IMS doing intensive metta and I'd always had a I was going to say a love hate relationship with metta I would say a hate hate relationship with metta I really didn't like it at all I thought it was sappy it was artificial I couldn't understand why anyone would do it especially for any length of time you know I started retreats where metta meditation was 3 minutes on the last day and I'm like that was that was good you know 3 minutes I could do but i started to realize as we often do that what i most resist is probably what i needed so i did sign up for this long retreat and it was tough it was tough doing metta intensively day after day after day for these weeks and but i was doing the practice and was able to say the phrases developing some continuity but the metta feeling was kind of like the flicker of a distant star or you know the little fire that you're having to kind of you know carefully blow on and go into my teacher and you know say it's it's okay you know kind of I I was going to say not aversive I probably some of the time I was but you know it wasn't you know it was some warm feelings a benefactor friend it was kind of nice but it wasn't you know bodies of rainbow light or golden bliss or whatever um and i would go and give these reports um time after time and one day my teacher said to me something like you know why don't you try this and that's probably all they said maybe softer even than that but i walked out of the interview creating a whole message that i thought i had heard of why don't you try this because it seems like nothing else is working and maybe maybe if you do this maybe something will happen and i just kept telling myself that story of failure and deficiency and why did i ever think i could do this and my teacher thinks i'm hopeless and i think i'm hopeless and i'll have to tell people i failed at meta and i even had the thought could i fake it could i just go into the interviews oh yes yeah, all good meta love it you know and then just go on and walk in the woods or something but And so I was trudging down to my walking meditation path just filling my mind with these, you know, judging thoughts of deficiency and not good and hopeless and despair and, you know, how do I get out of here and help me and I'm uh, just really spinning in it. And by the grace of the Buddha, <laughs> I had the thought, you know, this is a very familiar place. You could spend a lot of time here. hours days weeks possibly of just beating yourself up not good enough you know depressed morose despairing very familiar but i had the thought of impermanence i said at some point this will change at some point due to internal or external conditions you'll f- come out of this you'll find your way back to the surface of this what would it take 
to get from here to there without spending a lot of time in that abyss of despair. And then the next thought of grace came, I'd have to accept that this is what my metta practice looks like. This is all I can do. I can't, I'm trying, I'm giving it effort. I can't do any more than that. Unless I accepted that this is what metta practice looks like for me, feels like for me, I am going to suffer. It was just so clear. And so I just took that next breath and next step and next phrase and kept going. And I'd love to say, you know, the clouds parted and the sun shone and it was all wonderful. It wasn't. But I was able to keep going and that retreat was very profound for me, very transformational. A lot because of that clarity of the power and the necessity, really, of acceptance. And so again, this choice, more choice than we think. When the choice gets really clear, what do I choose? May I be happy? Can I relate to myself with kindness? Or I'm worthless, hopeless, never going to get anywhere. Which one is for my well-being and benefit? You know, just to really open to it in that way. And this is where that self-compassion practice. Did you do it, James, the other day? No, we haven't done it yet. We should, we will talk about it. But just in brief, Kristen Neff has taken our practice of the Brahma Vihara of compassion and really um, formulated it very simply uh, for self-compassion for self, where you just start with your hand on your heart and you say, this hurts. This is really hard. This mind state, this loss, this grief, this pain, this physical challenge. This hurts, this is dukkha, this is suffering, this sucks, this is really hard. And then you recognize that you're not alone, that at this point in time, countless beings are feeling something just like this. We are in this web of interconnectedness. And then, how do I respond to that with kindness? What do I need? What phrase, what offering... What caring can I give to myself to hold this with compassion? And so we can use our practice to work directly with the inner critic, starting with what I talked about yesterday in working with thoughts. A judging thought is just a thought. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a conditioned nature. You know, as I said, it's lawful in the sense that Previous judging thoughts and our willingness to buy into them creates the conditions for future judging thoughts. So we start to see that. That's its lawful nature. We're not, you know, we certainly don't invite the judging thoughts. We're not in control of them in the sense we can just say, no, judging thoughts don't come. But we understand their nature. And especially that they're just some words in the mind. And if we can see them with that way... Um, they lose some of their power over us. Sometimes they can lose complete power over us. And that anything that's been conditioned can be unconditioned. It's been learned, it can be unlearned. And so we work with it in that way, just through mindfulness. Ah, here's a judging thought. Feel it in the body. Feel the impact, the contraction, the resistance, the fear, the vigilance, whatever might be coming out of it. Can we hold that with kindness? Can we open to that? Bring in the acceptance or the forgiveness practice that James taught the other day. You did the best you could. This was some part of you trying to take care in the best way it knew how. And so we start to see that there's a whole journey here um, of starting to trust or have faith, as Kamala talked about the other night, in this capacity for truth and love and opening and deepening. As Byron Brown says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value 
and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. So it's a process of inquiry. Again, we're not doing therapy, getting caught in the story, going back to trying to resolve old issues, but if this is up for you, we can hold this with wisdom and compassion and begin to unwind some of these knots. And almost inevitable, if we have that relationship towards ourselves, we also turn it outwards. The judging of others, the judging of situations out of our sense of ourselves, out of this often constricted, um, vulnerable sense of ourselves, of, of deficiency, from our fears and our neuroses. And because of that contraction, it limits our ability to connect, to be open, to feel empathy, to understand someone else's experience because we're so shut down sometimes and lost in our own fears and anxiety. And so there's a process here that just creates a feedback loop. And so this, from our establishment of care for ourselves, you know, creating the sense of cultivating the possibility for empathy and just really understanding that other people are having a different experience than us, experiencing a different reality, have different conditions that they're bringing to whatever it is, certainly on this retreat, 90, 100 people, whatever, all with their own unique conditioning. And we're kind of bouncing off each other and this sort of, permeability or empathy of um, honoring that that's a truth for others. Because this sense of disconnection that we can have just empowers the judging voice. And this can happen on, on, on personal levels. It can happen around groups or types of people as we create the sense of separation out of isolation can really create painful patterns in the mind. I recently uh, read a book by Shaquille Chowdhury. He's a Canadian author that writes on diversity, and his book is called Deep Diversity, and he's actually a meditator, and so it's very in alignment with, again, our understanding of how to, to bring um, an opening to diversity in ourselves and in our communities, in our world, and how important that is to understand the ways our mind closes down around any sense of othering that we can create. And he talks about <clears throat> using mindfulness to bring awareness to perceptions and, unconscious, and the unconscious bias that leads to othering leads to prejudice. And he talks about noticing personal contradictions. He says, all of us display inconsistencies to a greater or lesser degree between our stated beliefs and how we act. Studies show that people who are able to detect the contradiction between their intentions and actions are more successful in reducing bias. Meditators are especially good at this. Their mindfulness training teaches them to observe their thoughts and feelings without judgment, a technique that tacitly familiarizes oneself with such discrepancies. So we can use our practice to understand or see more clearly the way we create othering or judgments, again on an individual level or around groups of people for whatever reason, and start to dismantle that. See, it's not in alignment with our beliefs, but our actions, we have to bring our actions into alignment with that intention. And, and um, it, it, one of the ways that as I know I as a white person can do this is see myself as an individual, but people of other races or backgrounds as groups, as, as representative, as, as, as not individuals. And so um, Shaquille recommends a practice he calls carrots and curiosity. He says, because a stereotype is a generalization, when we encounter a member of a racial group different than our own, there is a tendency for our brain to register that person as a symbol of the group 
rather than see them as an individual. This does not happen for members of our own group. Researchers have found that getting subjects to ask simple questions about vegetable preferences, as in, I wonder if this person likes carrots, helps in bias reduction. It appears that the power of curiosity can help humanize others so that we see them as unique individuals rather than as representatives of the group. And this is talking about this same capacity for seeing through our assumptions and preconceptions and stereotypes. And as we humanize and open to our own humanity, seeing that in all we meet, seeing that preciousness in everyone we meet. And so we can work with this tendency powerfully, deeply on retreat. Really important to do this practice with kindness if this is a strong tendency for you. Every now and then I meet someone who says, no, no, I don't have that problem or that tendency. I'm like, really? But so many of us, it is. So do it with, but do it with kindness. I really find it's helpful to bring humor in. You know, Jack Cornfield will say, count your judgments in a day. You know, just say, I'm going to count every single one that flits through. And by the time you get to 536, you kind of realize, just it's like, we're just used to doing it. But that highlighting of it can actually change how we relate to it. We can see what's fueling the judgments. It doesn't come in isolation. There's fear and aversion and confusion and separation and um, worry in this restlessness and doubt. All can swirl around when the judging mind is strong. It can feel very physical. You can feel when the mind is in that judging mode, contraction and tightness and, 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 a, and a resistance. I, I spoke about feeling for a time my heart like a rock. People can sometimes feel a band across their forehead or across their chest of just this resistance and tightness that can happen. So we drop into the body and just feel and name what's happening here. As we see the automatic nature of judgments, again, can't take it so personally, but the less we give it energy, the, that pattern will diminish. Again, I can remember being on retreat at IMS. This was a little while ago. When IMS was more funky than it is now, I don't know if you know, IMS was, they took over a very old building and it just gradually converted it to being a, a meditation center. And, you know, it's a wonderful place to practice, but it was definitely a very old building that they had converted. And, you know, it wasn't, uh, there were things that were somewhat challenging. They've really done a great job of renovation, and it's quite beautiful now in pretty much every part. But I remember I would go into the dining room, and it was just like someone turned a tape on. The ten things I didn't like about the dining room would just as my eye moved, the condiments are too close together. They don't have enough toasters. The floor's sticky. There's not enough chairs, and the chairs are too close together. And the lighting, you know, it just like a tape. And I would note that thoughts, and I'd feel the fear or the anxiety or the constriction, and nothing worked. It would just it was like a tape. I was just so tired of it coming. Um, and I remember Joseph would say something like, uh, "If you notice a judging thought." Just add, and the sky is blue. And I could never figure that out, because when I tried it, I'd have a judging thought, I'd say the sky is blue, and you go, damn right, the sky is blue, and this is true, this is how it is. So that didn't work for me. But what I did at that retreat, I'm at IMS, Massachusetts, East Coast, and they have lots of little chipmunks running around. They're often the best thing in your day, is you know just watching the chipmunks. They're so cute little squirrel-like beings. And I love animals, so I just made a practice of every time I had a judging thought, I would add, and chipmunks are cute. <laughs> and it just kind of redirected the attention instead of, it's like, oh, chipmunks. Oh. <laughs> and it just would lift my heart. So I offer that to you if you've got something, you know, it could be a grandchild or something in nature. It's just you redirect the attention. You're not giving energy to the judging thought. 
And for me, that really worked. It's just like dangle the, take the smartphone away from your two-year-old by dangling the keys. I'll play with this instead. It's like, our minds are like that. We need distraction. But really, the, the most central thing I want to say is this is workable. If this is a pattern for you, it can be transformed. You know, this choice point is clearer or more, more available to us than we think. Metta is a great practice for working with this judging tendency. And so saying metta, if you notice judging, to go to metta, and often if we're judging externally, we, we tend to say, oh, send metta for that person, but much better to send it to yourself, to feel the pain, to let yourself soften around that. Sometimes it doesn't feel like you're really meaning it, you're just saying it, but as my dear friend Carol Wilson will often say, fake matter is better than real aversion anytime. <laughs> so just fake it till you make it. And just trust this direction of practice towards more wholeness and kindness and acceptance and that it begins right here. Begins with how we relate to ourselves. Begins with our care and our love and our acceptance. So I spoke longer than I wanted, but I will take a moment, if you wish. It's totally optional. It's like the optional eight precepts to take these precepts to renounce. Actually, I, I like refrain from judging, fixing, and comparing. So it's optional. You don't have to take them, but if you wish, I'll say them and you can repeat after me. I undertake the training practice to refrain from judging. I undertake the training practice to refrain from judging. I undertake the training practice to refrain from fixing. I undertake the training practice to refrain from fixing. I undertake the training practice to refrain from comparing mind. So there's your practice. I'll release you from it at the end of the retreat. Remind me. And again, it's not that easy, but we can make intentions around this for our well-being and the well-being of others. As I said, as the more we establish care and kindness here, it's like a, a, a in the waterfall coming down, this little bowl of water fills and it spills, it spills and it spills out and open towards all beings. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for your attention. Again, about a half an hour for walking in the cool night air, and then invite you to come back for our last sit together with the chanting.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.